look on Twitter, I see some people who've never heard of us, and and yeah. some people say, oh my gosh, you know, people haven't heard of us, and I, I guess I worry less about that. Yeah. And there are other people, you know, the conspiracy theorists who've got a whole pile of kind of quite negative associations, but then there's a yeah. whole pile of people who work with us every day who worry less about our name and worry more about, you know, working with us and getting us to, to support them. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. In this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked, it's all about the Merchant Venturers, the 500-year-old philanthropic organisation whose origins go back to the transatlantic slave trade. At the falling of Colston Statue, himself a merchant, they've been thrust into the limelight. Today, they are a group of elite business people who oversee education, older people's home and community grants, and also play a strong role across transport, housing and infrastructure projects in the city, sitting on many of the one city boards. So... Today, are they relevant? Should they survive? And how does it look in 2021 to have an organisation directly connected back to those days? We talk to the first ever female master, Gillian Camp. It would obviously be a remiss for me not to mention, I've just made a documentary which you featured in, which went out on Radio 4, giving it a bit of a plug if anyone wants to listen to it. Were you okay with it? You were happy with how it was? Uh, it, it, it was absolutely fine. It uh, it seemed to paint a very balanced picture, Neil. Great. You're the first female master of the Merchant Ventures, which the title of master is kept. Did you discuss about whether that should change? The names are always difficult, and it just seemed better to me to just get on with doing the job rather than debate what you're called. I think it caused my husband a bit of anxiety. but um... oh, did it? Yeah, He's not calling you Master Gillian around the no, house. No, no, no. He thought I might call him Mistress. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Mistress, yeah. What I'm kind of interested in is in the membership recruitment for somebody like yourself. So you've been in the organisation how long? Uh, since 2003, 17, 18 years. Right. And how were you approached? How did it work? Well, I'd worked with a number of uh, individuals on various things in various companies and charities that I was involved with. And over quite a long period of time, got to know people who who were merchants, did a lot of work with different organisations through Bristol. And then um, basically people said, have you got a lot of time on your hands? Would you like to give something back to Bristol? And 17, 18 years on from that time, to suddenly be voted in as the master. How does that work? Do you have to put yourself forward? Other people suggest you? So so what happens is every year we look for people to go on to. It's, it's effectively the board of directors of the merchants. Yeah. And three people say, well, actually, I'd like to put my name forward. And they hopefully get voted in. And then you go through a period of a number of years. And then you get to a point where one or other of you has to say, well, actually, I'd quite like to be you know, heading this organisation up. The hall then votes you in or not, and um, I was fortunate to be voted in. And it's a, just you're just in it for a year, yeah. That's right. Yes. So when yeah. does your term finish? November the tenth this year. Oh, not long then. No, no, it goes really quickly actually. And what happens then? Do you just sort of shrink into the shadows in the organisation there, or do you have like you know like ex prime ministers that have always have a sort of certain caveat in Parliament? Do you then join the kind of long list of ex-masters alumni 
alumni. My my mother says to me that today's cock at midden is tomorrow's feather duster. And that's probably yeah. about the size of it. But but you have a leader into taking over the organisation. You have two years where you're kind of really, really learning the ropes. Mm-hmm. And then you have a year where you are around to support people. So are you spending your time going to lots of dinners and doing speeches and opening places with the scissors and ribbon and all that is that how it works or is it or are you kind of attending lots of meetings just paint a picture of what the kind of role is like so so the kind of things I've been doing is we've been having regular meetings with One Bristol which is an organization that's been working with various different community groups to look at things like getting us what we call the One Bristol curriculum which is making sure that the curriculum across Bristol is much more representative and reflective of the kind of the kind of Bristol we are really I'm spending quite a bit of time understanding the history of the society a lot better making sure that we as a society reflect on our history Um, the schools takes up a huge amount of time and I'm very privileged to be on the board of Venturers Trust which is our eight academy schools what is the primary motivation for the merchants becoming involved in education. If you look at what we're about, we're about helping communities across Greater Bristol to to thrive, to succeed. And one of the key things for closing the disadvantage gap, and Bristol has pockets of real disadvantage, more than pockets, a real disadvantage. And the best way to close that gap is to make sure that everyone has access to an outstanding education. So I think if you look at Colson Girls, now to be known as Montpellier High School, um, and it's interesting because Cleo Lake tells the story of when she went there. And at that stage, it wasn't a state school, it was a, a, a private school. And she talks about walking past the school with her mother when she was very young and saying, what's that building? I want to go to that school. Now, she was lucky to get an assisted place. And at that time, I suspect there's probably about 300 girls there. Yeah. Well, today, under what we've managed to achieve with the teachers and with the school, there's 900 girls at that school and everybody gets a free place because it's a state-maintained school. And she talked about being the only child of African heritage there. Well, the number of languages spoken at that school runs into double figures. Because when I was growing up, you would look at Colston Girls and you'd just be in maybe the most elite private schools in the city. And as you say, there were four scholarships and assisted scholarships. In fact, my sister-in-law, she went to Colston Girls on a full scholarship. So that that, that kind of thing happened. You, you've been through this process of then setting up schools in areas of deprivation. And now you've opened up those private schools to be academies. Was there a point when you thought, right, we need to change what we're doing? And what was that and why? I think the issue was that if you looked at Colston Girls School, there were 300 pupils there. But we knew that when we had an open evening, there would be a lot of parents who wanted to sell their, send their children there. Mm-hmm. And so it was a Labour government at the time. We talked to the Labour government. Uh, they talked to us about potentially opening the school up as an academy. And that way we could actually offer the great education to you know, a huge number of people, regardless of their background, regardless of whether they could afford it. And the pupils themselves have been quite involved in the changing of the name? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's one of the things that took the time to make sure that this was done with the full involvement of all of the pupils. So 
We've got in lots of people from outside and they talk to the girls about what does democracy mean? Whose voice should count? Is it is it the old girls? Is it the current pupils? Is it people in Bristol? And it was a really, really comprehensive process. I was involved with the three girls who kind of steered this through. And they said to me, we were so excited presenting to the trust board about our recommendations. And I think they were even a bit sceptical about whether we'd finally act on them. But it, it was their decision. And I thought it was a really tremendous exercise. I just felt so proud of those young women. Sure. And beyond the name change, what kind of changes to the curriculum are taking place in the school? So it's 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 not us, it's the schools themselves sure. and, and yeah. the school leadership in all of our schools. They are really, really keen to make sure that that people understand the history and 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 that things aren't kind of brushed under the carpet. Yeah. You know, in our primary schools are making sure children learn about role models that are representative of the people in the classroom. And your sense is that this process was taking place prior to the statute coming down. But in effect, would you would it be fair to say it is accelerated? Yeah, I think yeah. it accelerated. There, there's been a lot going on in the schools, but I think you're right. The, the statue coming down was a catalyst and accelerator. Do you know there's certain times in your life where you feel like history's being made, and that felt to me like the whole of Bristol suddenly said, "Right, come on, let's get serious about this." Managing that, you know, a being the first woman, you know, was it 500, 600 years? Long, long, long time to be the first woman. You know, and I'm not asking you to throw anybody under a bus or anything, but you must have had some quite <laughs> robust conversations in the organisation to try and sort of drag it a little bit in, into the 21st century. Well, I don't think, honestly, I really don't think so. And, and as for being a woman, I just don't think that was a big deal. I, I, I genuinely don't think that was a big deal at all. Many feminists would say, come on, an organisation that's only had one woman master for 500 years is, is, is a bit problematic, surely. As somebody who describes themselves as a feminist, you know, I'm not, I'm not daft, but honestly, I don't think it's been a deal here. There are far more issues to worry about in terms of feminism than, than uh, this, yeah. this organisation. Do you have any resistance from people from the back? No, I think they said she's been around for 17 years. She's worked blooming hard and we respect her, to be honest universally across the board well they never said anything to my face but um... (laughs) i mean but obviously Obviously, i don't think it was a big deal no no for sure but obviously there is you know to be kind of realistic that you know it's clear that if we look at the roots of the organization is connected directly to merchants and the transatlantic slave trade it's one of the oldest existing organizations that goes back to that point you can even trace certain amount of the money from slavery that were left in trust through wills, through Colson, et cetera, to the present day. But there obviously is a will and a drive now to be more, what's the word, modern. You know, you've brought in people like Marty Burgess, the first black member. There's clearly a sea change taking place and you are at the kind of heart of that. I think, honestly, it's been a journey that we've been on for for a while. Actually, my predecessors have been working very hard on it. I think probably the statue and being the first woman's given it a bit of extra focus, but that's about the size of it. You're, you're definitely doing more media interviews, though, aren't you? Uh, well, yes. Um, you're talking to me twice. Oh, yes, we're talking yeah. to you. And, You've done um, interviews with The Post. You know, I know you went on with John Darvon on Radio Bristol. There hasn't really been, up until very recently, much... A, media coverage, or B, I guess you guys putting yourself forward for interview. 
Is is that a strategy? I think I think that people felt that they didn't want to talk about us. They wanted to talk about what we do. Um, and actually, I think with the statue coming down and with the focus on on education, on uh, you know what, the one Bristol curriculum, you know, people started to talk about things that we're talking about. And is that important to be open, transparent, talk more about who the organisation is, what you do in in the public domain? I think we want to be seen as a competent, effective organisation that can collaborate with other organisations across Bristol to help solve some of the real problems that Bristol's got. What are the real problems for you? Well, there's an issue about education, about access to healthcare, life expectancy. Would you argue and would you say that most people that that are invited to join, because it is invitation only, are, are kind of committed to social change? Yes, I mean, that's, that's you know, uh, as I said, we work with people all the time. And the, one of the primary aims is to make sure that we can uh, help the leaders in our school get their students access to the latest kind of industries, like the creative industries, get access to internships, work experience, all of those sorts of things. And therefore, we we need to have people around us who are able to put that time in and who are committed and who, you know, that's important to them. Directly from a spokesperson at Society of Merit Adventures, she said the organisation is committed to playing its part in helping make the vision of Bristol's One City Plan a reality, creating a fairer, healthier, more sustainable city by 2050. So for those that don't know One City Plan, there are a number of One City boards in Mm. Bristol covering things like green tech, transport, housing, economic enterprise, that kind of stuff. You're you're quite heavily involved and connected to City Hall as an organisation. That that sounds quite sinister. Um, What we are is one of the organisations in Bristol that sits alongside other organisations who are trying to work together and collaborate to try and increase social mobility. But the the concept of the One City Plan, which is a collaboration of business, third sector, people all together driving through these key kind of issues is something that does align fully with the merchant venturers strategy and plan of how they want to change the city. Yes and I think I think in the one city plan what you've got is a plan for a city that's got cross-party support that actually creates a vision for a city um, but doesn't go into all of the nuts and bolts about how it's going to happen but does create a vision. I'm but not sure it's got cross-party support because I think it's a Labour Party well, initiative. I, I, I don't think any political representatives are on any of the boards. It's only people that I mean, and that's been one of I guess one of the. It depends where you look about it. Some people I think think that it's an innovative new way of governance. Other people think that it's unelected power making decisions. Uh, if someone was to levy that at the merchants' involvement with uh, the One City Plan, how would you respond? So I don't think that we are where we have merchants on some of those boards, where we have members on some of the individual boards. The vast majority of them were involved in those boards long before they became uh, members. So if I look at, say, Fiona Frankham, Fiona Frankham worked as part of Bristol City Council in the creative industry of Bristol, did huge amounts of work. Uh, with Bottle Yard Studio 
bringing in tremendous opportunities and, and income to the city. And she's she's a, a member of one of those boards in her own right. So do they get approached because they're on those boards then? People get approached because they're in sectors that are really important to the kind of people that we're looking to support and because they've got a track record of bringing about change. And I think that is a charge that's that's levied at at the Merchant Ventures in the city. You know, by all means, push back at that, that you have an influence and a control over lots of different elements of Bristol. Firstly, is that true? And secondly, do you know how many merchant venturers sit on the One City boards? Um, I think it's probably about three from memory. Um, But again, all of those were doing lots of things in their own right long before they ever became associated with the merchants. But I think what's important is we've got people trying to bring about change, people trying to close that disadvantage gap and to make Bristol a fairer place. And that, I guess, the, it's philanthropy, isn't it, I suppose? And, and philanthropy in the one hand and also being involved in decision-making processes. There's obviously, you say that you're deeply committed to change and to changing the city. Are there, are there other ways that you can do that? Are there other perhaps more, I mean, I guess the argument against philanthropy would be paying more tax or, you know, I guess putting yourself forward to be an elected official. There is, a, there is a kind of cultural sense, I think, which does divide people. Some see this sort of stuff as a bit kind of Dickensian, I guess. Yeah, and I, I think, I think uh, frankly, we would do too. I mean, philanthropy can generate mixed reactions. Sure. And, and what I don't think the people of Bristol need is, is what I would call missionary work, frankly. Yeah. Um, and I think what we need to do is to get ourselves into a community where they are saying, this, as the people who know the community best, this is how you can help if you want to. So you kind and of ex- you accept that there is a there is a kind of line with this stuff in your own words. What do you say? Saving that you have to be quite careful how you do this, and you have to sort of get alongside organisations in communities to make effective change. The way things are going to changing very deprived communities so that people have that sort of social mobility. It's really difficult. You can't come along and mandate that kind of change. And for me, it's about, if I look at what's been happening in South Bristol, you've got South Bristol youth, you've got Hardcliffe and Withywood community, um, you've got Merchants Academy playing its role. And all of those organisations have a piece of the jigsaw. And actually, what we need to do, what everybody needs to do, is to put various pieces of the jigsaw together and work together. And it's not about any one organisation having the solution or owning the solution. It's really, really tricky stuff. And we're just going to be alongside organisations that want support. I suppose the counter would that be, in terms of philanthropy, for example, you're still deciding where the money goes and who it goes to and why. So I suppose in terms of the power dynamic, you're kind of holding, holding the purse strings, but kind of holding that control. That's kind of what, I guess, Kerry Bells' argument in the Radio 4 documentary, wasn't it? Kerry Bells is a community activist who was born and raised and still lives in Hartcliffe, who recently was voted in as a Labour councillor. Why are you making decisions where the money goes in our communities? Why not just let us sit on your boards and decide where that goes? 
Is there, is there some legitimacy to that argument? I think what we're trying to do is to make sure that we are beside people like Kerry. Kerry will know what her community needs. Of course she does. Um, and, and that's what our role is, is to sit alongside. If I look at um, our involvement in quartets, we were able to... Quartet have got a deep understanding of communities. Can I just explain what Quartet is? Because people, oh, people won't know. Yeah. That, that's a, a, a kind of slush fund that comes through the merchants and is distributed across the community groups. Is that right? In the city? No, no, uh, it okay, isn't. Okay, you tell Neil. me what it is then. <laughs> no, well, it isn't, Neil. Quartet yeah. is an organisation that's it's a, what's called a community organisation. And it has um, worked, it's got a really deep understanding of where the need is, communities, and how to help. And it's gained that over several decades of working alongside communities. And when COVID struck um, and communities were left devastated and small community groups and small charities were left devastated, Quartet knew instantly where to go, where to get help. And they approached the Merchant Ventures along with other organisations. And we were able to get funding where it was required quickly with no messing. But it, well, that's what I said. It is. It is a. It's a. I mean, I've got funded for groups in the past. Quartet Community Foundation that distributes funds, doesn't it? The city to groups. Exactly yes, it uh, and it does that on a deep understanding of the communities and what communities require and what communities need. It's community driven. Sure. I don't. I didn't say it wasn't. I, I thought you were pushing back that, that you were saying to me they didn't actually administrate funds, but they do, don't they? No, they do. Yeah, uh, yeah they do. I guess that kind of wider point around how wealth is distributed do you feel that actually i suppose if you're looking at it from the kind of outside of it and you're looking at social inequality in a city and if you were to say to somebody the way that we can overcome social inequality in a city where there is this you know wealth disparity i think life expectancy disparity of about 12 years depending on Mm. which side of the city you live on to say the answer to that is a group of selected wealthy individuals ceos uh heads of business to dispense and drip that down and that will solve bristol's problems and all right you might get alongside people a bit and find out you know what people need and stuff like that but it's still driven from that center surely a far more radical redistributive agenda is needed to overcome this because we've been around for 500 years it hasn't worked before so why should it work now so I think it's um, we need to get realistic about what this organisation is. It's an organisation of 70-odd people. The average age is 67. 70 people, a lot of them are retired. They're reaching the end of their careers, but they want to put something back into Bristol. Well, of course, that is not going to be the organisation that solves all of Bristol's issues. Absolutely not. It's a tiny, tiny piece it's not a tiny piece. Merchant ventures are not a tiny piece. There's been you know research done that they are you know they made the second most uh, influential, powerful organisation outside the Bristol City Council. They're not a tiny. You, you know there are you know merchants heavily involved in big infrastructure projects across Bristol. Uh, uh, there, as I said before, there's there's a, there's seventy odd individuals, most of whom are around around retirement age who want to actually put something back into the city. Now, I agree with you, there are people who can get things done and who want to help get things done. 
But to say, goodness me, you know, the merchant venturers haven't changed the face of the city is, is an unrealistic expectations. And, and what we can do is focus on a small number of things and try and do them as well as we can. And that's really what we're trying to do. If you like cutting-edge conversations like this at the Zeitgeist Topics in Bristol, then you can become a member. If you do, you get to shape what we talk about, who we talk to, and the type of stories we cover in Bristol. So go to the Bristol Cable website, and if you chuck in a pound, five pound, ten pound, whatever you can afford, then you can become a member, and there are lots of benefits to being so. Back to the chat. Is there any I don't know, ethical standards to, to become a member? Do, would you disbar people from joining? Like, are you allowed to have a, I don't know, a criminal record or you know, are, are you allowed to be a, a political donor? Is, is there anything that kind of says, you know, you, you cannot join if you have X and Y? Um, I, th- I think that um, I'm not aware of anybody who's got a criminal record, but uh, I, I think that what we're trying to do is to make sure we've got uh, people from a whole variety of different industries um, as as members, and that is a change from the past where it used to be seafaring merchants. So today, you know, we've got doctors, we've got people from the creative industries, we've got educationalists, we've got a whole range. Um, what we do do is really focus on how we're governed, and we are trying to be. Um, uh, we, we have an organisation where people declare their interests if they yeah. have an interest where you know you can look on our website and you can see who our members are we work in some of the most heavily regulated sectors yeah. like care um, and education and all of those those industries are there people that on the i think there's a one city i don't know exactly what it's called like environmental green kind of group isn't there in in the city are there any merchants that sit on that because you were quite involved in this Bristol Green Energy thing before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're involved in Bristol. One of our members was involved in Bristol Green Capital. Bristol Green Capital, yeah. That's it. Yeah. And I think the whole green issues is is something that I think Bristol's really taken it to its heart. And uh, yeah. it's it's a really important area for the, for the city, I think. What was the chap's name who led it? Andrew Garrard. Andrew Garrard, yeah. So he was kind of leading that kind of thing. But kind of simultaneously, you've also got another member called Terence Mordaunt, who is co-owner of Bristol Port, who is chairman of the Global Warming Policy Foundation, who they've kind of been accused of denying climate change. How, how do you kind of square things like that when you've got people that have a particular vested interest? Well, I think it put pays to the argument that, um, you know, all the merchants act with one accord and they, they all were brainwashed into behaving in a particular way because our, our, our membership has a whole panoply of different beliefs and different ideas and everything else. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, at the end of the day, it's an organisation that people join as a member. Yeah. It, it's, not a, it's not something that's got any political... So you would have people of all political... He, he's a Conservative Party donor, as is David Ord. I think you gave £1.5 to the Tories in 20, 2005. So these are kind of people. But you also do have people that are connected to the Labour Party as well. So I think you made a good point there that this kind of assumption that you speak as one homogenous kind of voice... It's yeah. is probably a myth. It would make my life a lot easier if they did. But no, it's a, it's a society filled up with individuals with their yeah. own opinions and their own views. Go back to my question before about disparring or, or somebody getting kicked out. But I'll give you another example. 2016, Colin McColpine was master of the society. 
His company was massively involved in blacklisting trade union builders and workers who were campaigning for better rights and conditions at work. So obviously now you're involved in this change management thing and you're wanting to kind of raise the standard of living. Something like that, would that run contrary to the modern face today of what the merchants are trying to achieve in Bristol? So effectively somebody is trying to do away with the rights of workers. One of the interesting things is what we've done in our multi-academy trust recently is recognise the trade unions. And I've worked with trade unions all my life. Um, and and I think that's an important part of uh, modern business life. Should he be kicked out then? No, he wouldn't be kicked out because we have a whole range of different views. Um, and it, but there and must be a line. If I'm trying to, I guess what I'm trying to drive at is, where, is there a line where you think, well, actually, no, this is not you know, a good look for us of what we're trying to achieve in Bristol? I can't I can't summon up a, a particular set of circumstances at the moment but uh, well I've just given you one the, the fact that he massively involved in blacklisting of trade union builders and workers who were legally campaigning for better rights and conditions but he is still a merchant venture but so that is an example of something that's okay I think that individual merchants have individual ways of doing it. And I certainly can't speak for Colin McAlpine, but what I can tell you is where we are today. And as I said, we, we have recognized trade unions in our schools and, uh, you know, and that, that is what is where we are today. There's that sense, I guess, then, as, as you just touched on, that various different members have different business interests. They have, um, uh, different political beliefs. They are involved in various different schemes. There, there has been some controversy over port ownership, or there's been over YTL Arena. People talk about Colin Skellett and his involvement with the merchants has led to the, the mayor in this direction. This is the sort of stuff that goes around the sort of Twitter sphere. Is 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 all of that a load of nonsense? And, and I guess what, and I guess the wider point is, how do we know when somebody is acting on behalf of the merchant venturers, or they are just acting as an individual? I think most of the time people will be acting as individuals because uh, you would know that they were acting on behalf of the merchant venturers if it was something to do with our schools, something to do with our care homes and things like that. But you've got 70-odd people who all come from different places in terms of their businesses, how they're involved in their businesses. So autonomy, they have autonomy within that. Because this is where a lot of this stuff comes from. It's hard to know where the line is when someone is acting as an individual or is acting as a merchant venture, the, uh, the plaque on the statue, someone who opposed that and wanted to slow the process down was a merchant venture and was a historian. And you could easily say, well, actually, you've just acted as an individual. At, at what point do we know if somebody is acting as a merchant venture or if they are acting as an individual? I think the reason you would know somebody was acting as an individual would be if it's part of the kind of core things that we do. And if you speak to um, either our chief executive, Caroline, or whoever's heading up at the organisation at the time, and they'll be able to tell you whether that's part of our core activity, what we're doing at the time, or whether it's somebody doing something outside of that. Okay, if you spot somebody with potential, and obviously we're in a, a fast changing environment now, aren't we? That if you've only got to look across the Atlantic to see what were the kind of wealthy and influential people. It's kind of changed. If you go to sort of Silicon Valley, it's sort of scruffy people with beards and hooded tops like me in their kind of 30s that are kind of running the world there, isn't there? Yeah. You said earlier about, is it 60, 65 or the average age? I can't remember what you said, something like yeah. that. I guess you must kind of be looking for the next generation of members as we speak. 
And and we're trying to do that um, with a degree of not science, but in in a fairly kind of thoughtful way, really. So so you know we would be looking out to who are the entrepreneurs in the future, who are the people who are really fighting Bristol's corner, bringing in new industries, who are the people who are getting a real making a difference with the kind of um, social change that they're helping to bring about, all of those sorts of things. That's new money, startups, entrepreneurs, new people into Bristol. We've got a lot of people coming from London. That Could there be a problem with the brand? Could there be a problem in recruiting people? I, I guess whilst I concede and accept, you know, there, there obviously has been a modernisation and a change of who and what you're doing, and you're part of that. If there was somebody, you know, who was young, hip, successful, entrepreneurial, did sort of social activities, but had quite a kind of progressive social liberal conscience, could they struggle to join an organisation that, that is effectively directly originally related to the transit land slave trade? Could, could, could that be a potential problem you'd need to navigate or a challenge you'd need to navigate? And you may not believe this, but we do have some of those members already. You do? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Scruffy, hooded tops going into the merchant school? We've, we've got <laughs> people who have all sorts of... Um, different working environments, different aspirations and everything else. We're, yeah. we're a very broad organisation. But you can see the age is obviously, you know, the average age is quite high. So what's your youngest member? Um, I would say early 40s. Early 40s, OK. So there is a, if there's a kind I, of... I was, I was 43 when I became a member. Really? OK. Because yeah. I think for some people, if we're being really, really honest now, you know, it would be an issue for some people. And, and I think if people say, you know, actually, I want to paddle my own canoe, I don't want to get involved in, you know, education, and actually, I just want to do my own thing. And, you know, um, I want to, I want to use my millions to go to the moon, then probably they wouldn't be the right person to join the organisation. But just because somebody's younger, and we've got a number of younger members. Yeah. But the, the issue is, in a way, it's a bit self-selecting, because you have to have time to do some of the some of the hard work. So it kind of um, sits perhaps more in with people that are either edging to retirement or perhaps they run businesses that run themselves a little bit. Yeah. But there would be those type of people that would effectively perhaps want to make change in the city and it would be a shame for them not to potentially become a member. I'm just wondering whether the, you know, you can't change the history and obviously you're doing more now to be um, I think you've commissioned some historians, aren't you? So you're going through this process mm-hmm. of pushing that kind of stuff out there, which is great. But is there? A, do you think you need to change the name, Gillian? <laughs> um, do you know what I mean? Because that might sort of... I'm kind of trying to help you out here. So these younger people of my age thinking we want to join, I think that might help them. I, I, I guess we could change our name to Purple something or other. Um, <laughs> Pur- purple um, Love, Purple Heart, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Purple something, anyway. Yeah. But but I think I, honestly, Neil, right. all my experience in in my business life says whenever you're going to change the name of anything, it takes a lot of time. Um, but it, you've it, done it with the Colston, haven't you? Yeah, so why, absolutely. Why, why, can't you do it with? I mean, effectively, Colston was a merchant venture. It's just a description of what he was. Yeah, absolutely. And it was right. It was right that 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 uh, the girls the girls were very clear that they they wanted to change that name, as were were a whole pile of other people. I mean, we could spend an awful lot of time looking inwards and thinking about what to call ourselves. Yeah. Actually, do you know what? I've got one year at this and I want to spend my time trying to make a difference. 
And I guess when I look on Twitter, I see some people who've never heard of us. Some people say, oh my gosh, you know, people haven't heard of us. They haven't heard about, you know, what we do or anything like that. And I I guess I worry less about that. And there are other people who have a whole, you know, the conspiracy theorists who've got a whole pile of kind of quite negative associations. But then there's a whole pile of people who work with us every day who worry less about our name and worry more about, you know, working with us and getting us to, to support them. And those sort of conspiracy theories then, what are the main conspiracies? I don't know. It's just I've heard that phrase, you know. You tell me. What what phrase? Conspiracy theorists. But you said, I see these conspiracy theorists, or just what conspiracy theories have no, you when seen? No, well, when you look on Twitter, you, you, you know, the, well, it's the whole thing around, you know, we're, we're kind of um, on every board and et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. I mean, there is a presence on the board, so isn't there, from merchants in the city. Well, I mean, I'm not that's a bad thing. I mean, you have an influence in the city and you are on a lot of the different boards in Bristol. In terms of the boards that we're on in Bristol, quite often it's because we started the organisation in the first place, which, you know, you might have a, a member nomination. But in a lot of cases, we have been rowing back from that and, and not, you know, our member nomination on boards has reduced over time. Sometimes we're on it because, you know, individual organisations want somebody with a particular skill set on their boards. And um, sometimes it just so happens that somebody's on a board and they are a merchant. So, that, I mean, that goes back to that thing again. Are they, are they on there because they're a merchant or are they on there as an individual that happens to be a merchant? I think, you know, Western Harbour, which is a big infrastructure project. Cabot Circus was sort of driven. You know, the docks, the, the, the Bristol Port redevelopment the involvement in YTL, the, you know, there's a number of big, the, the university now with the land around there, the exhibition centre, you know, these are all things, big, big infrastructure projects in the city that do have merchant venture involvement at quite a key and quite a high level. So that's not, that's not a conspiracy, that bit, is it? No, that, that's individuals who happen to be merchants who are doing that sort of thing as a result of their day job. You know, we we you know we've got quite enough to do, um, supporting our schools, supporting the care of older people, and everything else. And you know, we don't we don't get involved in all of those sorts of things. So the rationale is, if you're involved in specific merchant venture run projects and trusts, then you're in that capacity. But if you're on other boards or other infrastructure you're not necessarily in the capacity of a merchant venture you're not at all in that capacity not at all okay the the messaging i think you're partly responsible for why there are conspiracy theories because i don't think that's clear no not you personally as an organization i think that perhaps you haven't really explained that you just explained that to me and that makes sense but i don't i don't know if you've put that out into the city enough for people to understand that I think you're right, Neil, and you talked a bit about, well, why are you suddenly talking a lot more? And I think we've accepted that actually we haven't always got that right and this is something we need to try to put right. Yeah. And what about the more kind of culty or sort of slightly odd thing, which touched again, I'll keep plugging the documentary, you know, about things around the toenails and the sleigh bell and all that kind of stuff that kind of, it sort of creates the macabre, you know, the cost of burn and all this kind of stuff. How... So sort of looking back on that a little bit now, which I think you said is a bit of daylight between the present organisation and then, that must have fed into the conspiracy stuff, surely? Well, I think it all kind of sounds a bit weird and a bit a bit kind of um, 
It's a bit Eyes Wide Shut, isn't it? Remember that film? Yeah. I'm honestly, Neil, I've been a member for, as I said, a long, long time, and I have never seen anything that looks like that uh, in the whole time I've been here. Yeah, but the bun was real, wasn't it? The bun did happen, and the, the nails were, you know, even what Caroline said, and the nails were on display for people to see. There was a slave belt there. So, yeah. so, so again, it's not, it's not completely made up, is it? No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I think what we are doing now is, alongside lots of other groups, looking at our history, looking at it at, at a much deeper level than we have been, and looking at how we contextualise what 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 our history actually means. Yeah. Um, and we've been doing a lot of that. And uh, I think but we've been doing it alongside other people. I think the whole of Bristol's actually which I think is actually quite exciting, is on a, it's, it's just on a, a kind of journey where we're trying to understand all different sections of, of Bristol life and put them alongside each other and make, make Bristol a better place. That, it, that's where our focus is. Are you looking at models of perhaps resident-led? We talk about Hartley, for example, and Kerry brought up. You know, I've just been involved in a project where young people are given a pot of money and they oversee and decide themselves directly where that money goes to. Are you looking at different kind of models similar to that to perhaps try and have it so it's a less of a kind of hand-to-mouth relationship? Yeah, and I think if you look on our website now, you'll see a report of uh, one of our committees that actually hands out and makes grants and things like that. And what we're trying to get much more into is evaluating the impact of, of the money and understanding that. But what we've found is most effective is by giving a number of comparatively modest amounts of money to pump prime individual activities in the community. So, you know, go on our website and actually see the report from that committee. And I think that gives you a a much better idea um, uh, around the whole thing. And what what we're trying to do is make the whole thing more transparent, Mm -hmm. more professional, Hmm. It's a different dynamic, isn't it? It's a different power it, it dynamic. Is. Yeah. It is. Uh, it is. And I think if you look at, you know, towards America about what's been happening there, you know, I think what we're really excited about is kind of community interest companies. Okay. You know, yeah. where organisations on the ground say, we want to run this company for this sort of impact uh, and we require this sort of funding, but we're running it. And you're actually then generating additional resource yeah. so that that becomes self-sustaining within a community that looks more like communities understanding what they need and getting the resources to address it rather than somebody flying in and saying, this is what you need. And, and that, for me, is, is the real way forward. So what's next for you then after November? going to put your feet up, uh, relax? Uh, and all this. Do you have a big party at the end to say goodbye? Or No, no, I think I just slip off like today's feather duster, as my mother would say. Yeah. But... Um, no, I think it's it's been a really interesting year. I've spent most of it sat in my front room looking at Zoom, mm-hmm. but I've met some great people and I'm really proud of Bristol. I think we've navigated a very, very difficult year, 18 months. Yeah. And I'm excited to see what we can do going forward. And are you optimistic? Because there are some people in this city, and I've seen them you know, on social media, that are, are calling, like the Colson Society was, are calling for the merchant ventures to be disbanded. They're no longer relevant in the city. You should just go and hand the money over and let us decide what we do with it, all that kind of stuff. Are you confident that 
the merchants will survive, can survive and should survive and have a real positive future in the city? I'm always optimistic, but it doesn't mean that I don't worry about things. And I worry most about the city. I worry about, you know, if I look at the students in our schools, I think they're going to struggle to get jobs. I think they're struggling to cope with what COVID has done to our schools. I worry about those sorts of things. That That's what that's what I worry about, Neil. Lovely. I've still had my invite in the post, though. It's just, I've hinted six times now, but I think I need to take the hint, really, don't I? Talk, talk, to, talk to Caroline. <laughs> I think talk to Caroline. I don't know if it's a good look for a journalist, is it, to be a member? I don't know. Is it a conflict of interest? Oh, know. goodness knows. That's, that's, a bit, <laughs> that's a bit deep for me now. Um, thank you ever so much, Gillian. Thank you for being so honest and been a good sport. It's been a pleasure. No, oh, thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure too. All the best. That's it from Bristol Unpacked. Many thanks to Gillian Cam. We'll be back next time with another great guest and a fantastic topic. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs. And a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. And if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable along with 2,000 others to create a new kind of media for the city.